0: You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ, who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. John chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 19 through 26 in just a few moments. It has been said That worship is a basic human need. So the question is, not if we are worshiping, but rather, what are we worshiping? We are always looking to something or to someone to define our lives, to make sense of our lives, to bring purpose, direction. We are always looking to find some kind of redemption that lifts us, protects us, and maybe even secures us. And the truth is, our hearts are always in pursuit of something. There's never a moment where your heart is not pursuing something. It is always trying to find something that's noble Or something that is worthy. Or something that will take the scrambled pieces of our lives and make them fit. So what we say as Christians, what we say as those who believe in Jesus as Savior and who are following Him as Lord, that our hearts are always meant to be in worship of the Lord God. We are made to define our lives, not by self-authentification, through efforts of self-expression, but by being rightly related to Him. We are made to love God, and even more importantly, we are made to receive the love of God. We are made to adore God. We are made to enjoy God. We are made to obey God. And that is, in essence, what worship truly is. In John chapter 4, Jesus encountered a woman as he was traveling through the area where she lived in in Samaria. And through this encounter with this woman, Jesus defines for us true worship. And as we read these verses of how Jesus just I want you to listen to how Jesus explains and describes and defines worship of the Lord God. So beginning in verse 19. The woman said to Jesus, "Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship." For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. The word of the Lord. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. Worship can be a confusing topic for people. Not too long ago, we heard about worship wars and and how how all these different expressions and styles and emphasis, they they were warring against each other in a sense. And worship for many people is what you do at a building on Sundays. And to some degree, worship for some people has been narrowed into the songs that are sung and the prayers that are offered in a service. And while that is an important expression of worship, and probably where we're going to be focused on today, worship is so much more. It's all of life inclusive. It is the basic expression of the deepest thoughts and the strongest feelings of devotion, fear, affection, and reverence towards the Lord as it's expressed in every area of our life. That we are pushing those kinds of expressions and affections into every area of our life. And all of these deep thoughts and strong feelings lead to obedience to the Lord and of the Lord with our whole lives. The Samaritan woman asked a good question of Jesus, and Jesus gave a great answer. His answer breaks down essentially into three aspects of worship. We worship in truth, we worship in spirit, and we worship in Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So first, we worship in truth. Just a few verses earlier, The Samaritan woman had her sin exposed by Jesus. She thought she could cover it. He exposed it. And in response to that revelation, she decides that Jesus was a prophet. Verse 19, I perceive you are a prophet. And she then quickly moves to ask him a question about worship. Now, I've heard many times over the years how this has been brought how this has been preached or how this has been taught. And I, I've heard that that having her sins exposed, uh, that she then is trying to move to change the topic. She's uneasy with Jesus having exposed the sin in her life. So she tries to deflect into a controversial issue in their day about well where worship is located. Now, That might have been the case. We don't know her motive. We're not given her motive here. But she could have just as easily been sincere and have realized in this moment that the man that she was talking to was not like any other man. Her confession that he was a prophet could have been very sincere and not a deflection And in recognizing that Jesus was someone significant, she moved to get an answer to a question that had been plaguing her and possibly even had unsettled her. Are we Samaritans worshiping God correctly or have we missed it? That's essentially what she was asking Jesus. We say we worship on this mountain. You say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. So let's, let's understand the context of this woman's question here. In verse 20 again, My fathers worship on this mountain, but the Jews say you must worship in Jerusalem. So which is correct, she is asking. The question of where true worship is held goes back to Deuteronomy. As God's people were crossing into the promised land, God brought his people to two hills or to two mountains, so to say. These mountains were in what would eventually be known as Samaria. One mountain was Mount Gerizim, and the other mountain was Mount Ebal. God then directed that half the tribes assemble on Mount Gerizim, and the other six tribes of Israel assemble on Mount Ebal. Then God had the blessings of obedience In Deuteronomy 28, read from Mount Gerasim. I don't know if you remember, you can go back and read Deuteronomy 28. It begins with just this wonderful, if you obey, if you keep my word, if you keep my law, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to protect you. It's just this whole series of things. And he had that read from Mount Gerasim. After they read about the blessings of obedience, they then had read from Mount Ebal the curses of disobedience. If you do not follow this, if you do not keep my law, let me tell you what's going to happen. It's not going to be good. So what was clearly established in this event where you had half of the tribes of Israel on Mount Gerizim and half the tribe, tribes of Israel on Mount Ebal, was that God was again affirming and entering into a covenant as his people stood there. It was a conditional government uh, covenant. If you kept this, this would happen. If you don't keep it, this is going to happen to you. The people heard of the good and generous blessings of obedience. And then they heard of the harsh and deadly curses of disobedience. And then God did something unexpected. He said, I want you to make an altar of worship to me. But he didn't tell them to build that altar on Mount Gerizim, the mountain of obedience. He told them to build that altar on Mount Ebal. The mountain of disobedience. This would not have been lost on the people. Standing there. And even from our perspective today. We understand even more fully. Will people approach God by works? Or are they going to approach God by grace? God is approached not through our good works. But through the gracious sacrifice for sin. But then. And Both for then and for us now, the lesson is that salvation is not by works of grace. No sinner can seek salvation at Mount Gerizim because they have failed to obey God's full and exacting law. Now I'm giving you just a simple summary of this. We could go into much deeper but I just want you to understand what's happening and what's behind what this woman was asking. God, in that moment, in Deuteronomy, was pointing to an open door at Mount Ebal, a door that would be opened fully by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Christ brings us the blessings of obedience while He absorbs the curses of our disobedience. When the woman references a mountain that her people worshiped at, in verse 20 of John 4, it was Mount Gerizim she was talking about. The Samaritans had long worshiped at Mount Gerizim and believed it was of chief importance above all the other mountains. And they scorned the idea that worship should be offered at a, in a temple at, at, at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And what we know from history that the Bible that they were using Just contained the first five books of the Old Testament. They did not have, they did not see the Psalms or the history books or the prophets. And what we also know happened there is they changed what was written in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 4, where where Jesus, where where the the Lord said, At Mount Ebal, there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God. They changed that to read at Mount Gerizim. There you shall build an altar to the Lord your God. They changed Mount Ebal to Mount Gerasim. So the Samaritans built their temple on that mountain, on Mount Gerasim. Jacob's Well, where Jesus met this woman, was at the foot of Mount Gerasim. And Jesus' response to her is one of those wonderfully clarifying verses. He tells her plainly that her worship and the worship of her people have been wrong. You're worshiping what you don't know. She and her people were not worshiping the true God, but an image of God based on wrong understanding of God because they had twisted and turned the Word. Their worship was based on wrong conclusions about who God was and what God was doing. They were ignorant of God, though they thought they knew what was going on. So please hear this. Without knowledge of God and knowledge about God that comes from God, any worship, any idea of salvation or of obedience or of devotion to Him, it will be off. It will be skewed in some way. When we think about the the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is to have no other God before the Lord God, right? The second commandment was, you shall not make any carved image or any likeness of me. The first command forbids worshipping false gods. The second command forbids worshipping God in a false way. And that's what was describing what was happening for the Samaritans and specifically for this woman. The Samaritans were doing exactly that. They had made a God that seemed right to them. I mean, how many times have you heard this from maybe friends, family, co-workers? When they start talking about God, they say, I just don't think God would do that. My God wouldn't do that. You ever heard that? My God wouldn't do that. And inside you want to say, that's true because your God doesn't exist. The second commandment was to prevent us from coming up with ideas about God and then projecting those onto Him. Scripture tells us that we are made in God's image. Now that is reversed. We are people who are making God in our image. Instead of understanding Christ as he has revealed himself in scripture, people have this caricature of him. Listen, a person can sit on a hillside and see a beautiful sunrise and know there is a God, but that's the extent of it. What that God is like, what that God requires, what that God is doing, you're not going to perceive that on sitting on a hillside at a sunrise. God's got to tell you those things about himself. And that's why the word of God is essential and why we worship in truth because God has revealed himself to us through the word. And because people don't accept the word anymore, Jesus has been reduced to this just generally likable, approachable man who taught good things and did good things and we should all be like him. What they don't know is because that's, just, that's all their imagination can see. That's what makes sense to them. Just like this woman, she had an idea of what God was like. People don't understand that Jesus is the sacred Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world and one day He's going to come again and judge the living and the dead. You're not going to know that perceiving that on a hillside. Somebody's got to tell you that. That's why the Word is so important. Our worship of God must be in truth And it must be a truth that comes to us from God himself. This means from Holy Scripture. It cannot come from our conceptions of who he is, or what he is like, or what we want him to be. Or what makes sense to us even. It must come from his word that tells us who he is, and what he is like, and what he has done, and what he wants, and what he requires, and how that requirement is met. You see, we are surrounded by people both in the church and outside the church who want Mount Gerasim, but aren't willing to understand the purpose of the altar at Mount Ebal. They want the blessings, but don't don't understand the curse of their sin. And what is probably the most common held belief of people today, and I I think we can make an argument probably of of all people on this planet, they believe in karma. Here's what karma says. Karma says, you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. What you put out there, by how you live your life, will come back to you in exactly the same way. The Christian faith says, no, that's not right. We hold to what we call grace. We did bad, we received Christ's good. And any good we do, it is because God is at work in us through His Son. What we put out there by how we live was put on Christ at the cross and was fully and finally judged. You know, expressions of this have crept into the church. We've talked about this in the past. Something, uh, A phrase that I think is just wonderfully descriptive of, uh, called moral therapeutic deism. That's a big phrase. But here's what moral therapeutic deism, it was coined about 15 years ago, I believe. It believes this, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Moral therapeutic deism believes God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Moral therapeutic deism also says that God does not necessarily need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And the final thing people who hold to this believe is that good people go to heaven when they die. This is gripping the church and it's seducing our young people. Jesus said to the woman, No, you're not worshiping correctly, you've missed it. Genuine worship must be truth driven, not emotion driven. Worship is a response to the revelation of who God is. Worship is a reflex to understanding Christ in the Gospel. Worship is a reaction to God coming to us and showing Himself in His Word by His Spirit. Worship does not initiate, it responds to the revelation of who God is. We worship according to the truth, which is why we must always know the truth. You know, and that is one of the values. That is at the core of the music we try to sing every Sunday, that we we intentionally sing. Years ago in my church, we began to notice a copyright that was on many of the songs we were singing because we wanted to sing songs, both hymns that we loved, but also new songs that were being written. We wanted to sing songs that had doctrinal grit to them, they weren't just full of warm, fuzzy statements. We also wanted, along with the the doctrinal grit, to sing things that were singable by the congregation. It wasn't just people performing. We wanted the congregation to sing and to be led in wholehearted engagement with the Lord. We wanted songs that would teach us about God, that would help us understand who He is and what He is like and what He has done. And then would be part of shaping the theology of the church as well. That's what we feel and hold to in this church. This is, what this is what we found in my church when, in Sovereign Grace. It was Sovereign Grace music was the copyright that kept coming up. And to this day, God's word drives the music that Sovereign Grace is producing. They are producing songs that are Christ-exalting and gospel-centered. We know, we know in this church that we sing songs that are not what many other churches are singing. We, we understand that. And, and we're not trying to be different just for difference sake. Say, hey, look at us. We're not, we're, this is not a source of righteousness at all for us. We are trying to ground our worship in the songs that lead people to rightly understand God and respond out of that. And so we have found, not just sovereign grace, there are some other sources that, that, that provide this for us. We must never sing songs that do not align with the truth, no matter how popular they are, no matter when they were written. I remember singing some some hymns, and I grew up Baptist in the Baptist hymn. I'm thinking, I don't know that that's true. Like the hymn, God of Earth and Outer Space. Yes, that is that was a hymn. It was very strange. In this church, we love to sing psalms and songs and new songs and hymns and spiritual songs as God's word teaches. It doesn't matter when they were written. What matters is what they tell us, what they lead us to consider, how they can influence us and what we feel and what we are considering and thinking and whether they are centered in the truth of who God is. Yet at the same time, the songs we sing are also meant to help us express ourselves, including our emotions. We worship in truth. Secondly, we worship in spirit. Verse 23 The hour is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. The hour that Jesus is referring to here is when he is going to die on the cross. See, Jesus is trying to move this woman away from what she had always thought to begin to understand something more important. Jesus is trying to help this woman and by implication help us uh, just just to move this away from associating worship with a place and beginning to center it in a person. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. This is one of those must statements that we have in the gospel of John and there are a number, of, a number of them. Must statements and it carries the weight of urgency. It carries the weight of exclusiveness too. Like you must be born again. And like the son of man must be lifted up. And Jesus must increase. And now we find out Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. This is the kind of worshipers God is seeking. Meaning, this is the kind of worshiper that God is making. This is what describes us as disciples. We worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. He's not corporeal. Doesn't have flesh and blood. God the Father doesn't exist as we exist in flesh and blood. Bound together by atoms and natural forces. He exists in purity and excellence and glory in His being. In His person. Our worship of Him in spirit means to worship Him with all that we are. Recognizing that while we're made in His image, He's also different from, than us. We are to be on the guard, on guard that we never worship God with just the appearance of worship. You know, that can be one of the dangers of focusing solely on truth. That we think it's just enough to get the right words. God doesn't want us just mouthing the right words whether we are singing or praying or whatever we're doing just going through the motions. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet said in in chapter 29. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Jesus says the same thing to the religious leaders in Matthew 15. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, these people honor honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Does that describe us? Well, the truth is sometimes it does. External expressions of worship that do not truly reflect our heart must be confessed as sin. And let's be clear. This is true of all of us. None of us worship purely. There's never a song that we sing that we sing free of sin. There's never a prayer that we offer that isn't touched or even tainted by our sin. And this brings us back to one of those incredibly important doctrines. That's why we talk about righteousness being imputed, not infused. We still deal with sin, but our righteousness has been settled in Christ. And so the forgiveness is always there. The restoration is going on because the righteousness has been imputed. It's been given to us. The, the reformers talked about it being alien. It's outside of us. See, when we understand that even in our worship, we're turning to the Lord, we're looking to Him, to Christ, that He alone is at work to bring true worship in spirit. You know, some people understand the spirit here, worshiping in spirit and in truth, as being the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't really seem to fit with how John is is communicating this account of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. But but even though that may not be the case, don't let that make us believe that the worship can be independent of the work of the Spirit within us. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He's talking about truth, the words of Jesus. John 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. We need the spirit of God that's bringing the truth. He brings remembrance of what Jesus said. The spirit of truth will guide us into truth. For our worship to be genuine The Spirit will be at work in us, revealing Christ, making Christ glorious, bringing to mind His words, His work. He will work in us always, growing us, so that our lips increasingly merge with our heart. So that our words and our heart are aligned. He's working that constantly, even though often they may not be. Worshiping Spirit in spirit is also shown in physical expressions. Yes, in physical expression. I think that's part of what he's talking about. Spirit, our whole being. Scripture talks in Psalms, just it gives so many connections to, to these kinds of expressions. We, we are told uh, about, we worship God with speaking in Psalm 34.1. I will extol, extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. We worship with shouting, Psalm 27, 6. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. We worship in singing, Psalm 47, 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. We worship God with bowing at times. Psalm 95, 6. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. We're told that we worship God with standing. Psalm 119, 120. My flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. There's dancing in Scripture. Psalm 149.3, let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. That's hard for a former Baptist to read, but it says that. Playing instruments, Psalm three two. praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. There's clapping, Psalm 47.1. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with the cries of joy. There's lifting up a hands in Psalm 63.4. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Now there are ways and there are times for these things to be rightly expressed, but worshiping God in spirit may and does find expression in these kinds of forms we see recorded for us in Scripture. And quickly, this leads to the final truth concerning worship. We worship in truth, we worship in spirit, and we worship now in Jesus. We worship in truth, that is the content of our worship. We worship in spirit, that is the manner of our worship. But all this is for Jesus. We worship in Jesus, he is the object of our worship. This was an astounding truth. Jesus was telling the Samaritan woman. The hour is coming when the place is not important because Jesus will be the new temple. Jesus said salvation is from the Jews, meaning the Messiah is coming from the Jews. Then the woman kicks in with, I know the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said, I who speak to you, I'm He. You don't need to look any further. Our English translation doesn't get the full significance of Jesus' response here. He he said, I am He, or rather, I am. This was not a subtle or cryptic expression, but a clear confession that Jesus is the one I am, just as God revealed Himself on Mount Sinai to Moses. When Moses said, The people are going to ask me who you are, what's your name? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus is saying that the Lord God is now present in front of you. Jesus is the object of our worship. He is the one we are to revel in, to trust in, to follow and obey. Our worshiping hearts find satisfaction in Christ alone. So we don't worship worship. We don't worship worship. We don't worship an experience. We don't worship our traditions. We don't worship styles. We don't worship liturgies. We don't worship emotions. As much as we love sovereign grace music, we don't worship the music. We worship the one the music points to. We worship in Jesus. He is the living temple and all who come to God must come through him. Again, these are the kinds of worshipers God is seeking. This is the kind of worshipers Jesus' death makes possible. This is the kind of worshipers that the gospel produces. This is the kind of worshiper our hearts aspire to be, and this will be the kind of worshipers we will be in eternity. Can we just thank God this moment for making us this kind of worshiper, as imperfect as it may be? But can we thank him that he's doing this work within us? Can we ask him to continue to root out all false worship, all sense that we can actually go to Mount Gerasim to approach him by our obedience? Can we ask him to fill our hearts and minds with the truth of him and to make Christ glorious, increasingly glorious in our eyes and that the gospel would grow in wonder as we consider it and understand it. This is where redemption leads us to be worshipers more and more of Jesus for our hearts to be captured by him. And every week, we share in communion. That's just another expression of worship. Communion is where every week, we reject trying to worship the Lord at Mount Gettysine. We say, no. We go to Mount Ebal. We go to our sin, to our disobedience. It is rejecting a work salvation. It is rejecting a work righteousness. It is humbling ourselves again and again as we see our sin and Christ's atonement for our sin. It is a time where we freshly experience in God's saving grace where we again are celebrating our union with Christ in His death and in His life. Communion is is worshiping in truth, in spirit, and in Jesus. Let's stand together and pray with me, please.